Hey, and welcome to the 12 Stone Church Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. For 20 weeks, we've been working through the Old Testament as a church, and and that's that's a pretty long time. Think back to to 20 weeks ago, what were you doing in January? What's changed since January? A lot has changed, but what hasn't changed at 12 Stone is we've been moving through the Old Testament, through kind of the story theme, the major story arc of the Old Testament as seen through the Jesus Storybook Bible. And you may ask the question, like I, I know I was, I was thinking through it, like why did we even do 20 weeks in the Old Testament? Well, really, I think there's a a few reasons, but a a couple just to remind us of we've done 20 weeks in the Old Testament because we want to see and know the character of God throughout history. We also want to kind of learn the foundational stories that help form his people. And then also, ultimately, we wanted to better know the Bible. And, and we've been in the Bible. And we've learned a lot about the Bible. And again, we use kind of the story theme of the Jesus Storybook Bible, not only in teachings, but also in how we did our family devotionals at home throughout this, this year. So we started with creation, where God is the maker of everything, heaven and earth, and you and me. And then there was the fall, where sin came into the world and destroyed God's creation. And then big stories like Noah and the flood and the Tower of Babel. And we begin to see that our God is a saving God, and we are most often a rebellious people. But then we learn about Abraham and Moses and David and Joseph and Daniel and Jonah getting us to see some of the core figures in scripture where we see this tiresome cycle though of God's faithfulness and our rebellion and how there's often consequences when we mess things up. But God is so kind to remind us through the prophets to draw us back to himself, getting us to the end of the Old Testament as seen through the Jesus Storybook Bible. To learn today something from the life of Nehemiah, where the Israelites have gone through this cycle around and around again of breaking God's heart and God being faithful and drawing them back into relationship. And in this moment, in Nehemiah chapter 8 through 10, the Israelites are back in Jerusalem. This is one of the last historical moments before the coming of Jesus a few hundred years later. And something happens when they come back where they've been in this cycle of of breaking God's heart, being conquered by enemies, being exiled, and where they come back and they get to rebuild and return to God in the city. Something happens there that I think we need to learn from today. So we're 20 weekends. Can we cheer for that? Like, dear, 20 weeks in the Old Testament. And here's what happens. Think about it. They've been in this cycle for literally generations, and they come back to the center of the city to celebrate that they're back in Jerusalem. God let them back in. They got to rebuild the the city, and they come back, and they're in the center of the city, and what do they do? They read scripture. I I, I read that, and we're going to look at it in Nehemiah chapter 8. I read that, and I go, they read scripture like that's what they do? After war and defeat and exile and waiting and returning and rebuilding They gather together, they open up the law of Moses, which was the portion of scripture that they had at that time, and Ezra, the scribe, reads that scripture out loud. And there's something so important for us to learn today, how the Israelites came back to their city and how they focused on scripture. So here's our driving question today. What good 
is the Bible? What good is the Bible? Notice how we're asking that question. Like, what is good for us about the Bible? Why does the Bible matter to you and me? Let me clarify something first, because this is not a teaching on why do we believe the Bible is true, or even how was the Bible put together, though we could talk about how the Bible is the most evidentially supported document in human history, according to the sheer number of ancient manuscripts, archaeological findings, and consistency with other extra-biblical documents, eyewitness testimony both in the Bible and outside the Bible, and the remarkable accuracy from manuscript to manuscript over the course of a thousand years. But we're not going to talk about that. We could talk about how the Bible is, the, uh, is what God inspired over 40 authors across a period of 1,500 years in three different continents to produce one holy volume with one clear and coherent message. But, but we're not, we're not going to talk about that. We could talk about how there's been over 23,000 archaeological digs in geographic regions mentioned in Scripture, and there's never been one to contradict a historical assertion from the Bible. We could talk about the the people who gave up their lives claiming to be eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus and how they didn't recant their faith to spare their own lives, but died testifying that Jesus Christ actually died on the cross and actually rose from the dead because if Jesus is really alive, then it proves everything else in the Bible. But we aren't going to talk about that. Now, we could talk about how there's no other historical document has been more widely transmitted, printed, shared, taught fought over, argued over, analyzed, dismissed, accepted, and revered, and how through generations after generations, opponents rise against it, and yet the Bible still stands. But we aren't going to talk about that today. I just had to get that in there. (laughs) Now, our question today is, what good is the Bible? You see, I hope that you love the Bible that you'd be inspired by the Bible, that you'd see the beauty of the Bible, that you would see the power of God's word to us. What good is the Bible? It's so good. But I know different feelings come up to us when we talk about the Bible based on your background and maybe even your current faith. Maybe when you hear Bible, you think of a textbook because you think there's a lot to learn. Maybe when you think about the Bible, you think about it almost like a fable. Good stories, maybe some stories to learn from, but not necessarily true. Maybe when you think about the Bible, you just think about a set of rules where God's trying to control how we live. Maybe if you're like me, when you think about the Bible, you get some pretty traditional church pictures in your head with specifically something called sword drill. Anybody remember sword drill growing up? If you didn't know about sword drill, let me enlighten you to how this used to work. This was like 1990s church for me in Southern Baptist churches in South Georgia, okay? So here's what would happen. Uh, In kids ministry or youth ministry with sword drill, Bible being the sword, uh, what would happen is they put kids in the front of the room or like on a stage, students, and then a leader would shout out a passage, name of the book of the Bible, chapter and verse, and the kid that could get to that verse first and read it was the winner. They'd win a prize or something. Now, I don't know exactly why we did it, I guess to figure out like which kid was most holy or... uh, (laughs) Or to judge the parents of the kid who got last. Like, <laughs> Tommy, Tommy's always last. His parents don't love God. I don't know if that was how it was done. But, you know, I, I remember sword drill. And uh, there was always a few people that just get super competitive, even with something like the Bible. And they began to cheat. Uh, they show up with all the tabs. Remember the Bibles that have all the tabs in it? Like, you can't use tabs in sword drill. Or, or the kid that would, like, slip his finger 
like into it to kind of open it up a little bit to get ready so we could open the Bible faster. So you had to make rules where sword drill had to stand like this. I picture like 10 kids standing in front. It's kind of cultish, right? To stand in front with their Bible open. Maybe you get images of the Bible that kind of go back to your childhood. Or maybe when I mentioned the Bible, you have negative feelings because you've seen the Bible misused and abused in life. You see, we all have a background when you hear the word Bible, good and bad. So what we wanna do is be really clear about what we believe the Bible actually is. And I'm gonna read this specifically because I don't want us to miss these words, what we believe about the Bible. The basis for all our belief is the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. These 66 books of the Old and New Testament are inspired by God, originated with God, and are therefore without error, true, and accurate in their original writings. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired word of God. Therefore, the Bible is wholly authoritative. The scripture is sufficient for all that God requires for us to know, be, and do. It is therefore to be believed as God's revelation, followed as God's instruction, revered as God's commands, trusted as God's pledge to us in all that it promises, and loved as God's very words to anyone who reads it because love was the reason it was written in the first place. That is the Bible, and I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for the Bible. It is so Good. And looking back in this story in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapters 8 through 10, we're going to learn how to interact with the Bible ourselves. Here's our bottom line for today's teaching. The Bible, read it, rejoice in it, and respond to it. Read it, rejoice in it, and respond to it. Again, let me set up the context in Nehemiah. They'd gathered back in their city after exile. They rebuilt Jerusalem. This is a really, really good day for the Israelites. And as they were rebuilding, Nehemiah and the scribe Ezra gather people to the center of the city and they read scripture. And this starts in Nehemiah 8. And this moment carries so much power as we see the people of God interact with the words of God. So Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which was the scripture at that time, probably Genesis through Deuteronomy and which the Lord had commanded for Israel. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on the high wooden platform built for this occasion, and Ezra opened the book. Don't miss that. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people stood up Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, amen, amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Bible, read it. What if the first step to having the Bible impact your life really was to just read it? In this moment, the word of God moved with power among the people. Specifically, Nehemiah, they had collected the law of Moses to that point. They began to read this scripture. And when they began to read scripture, they were moved to worship. Because they began to perceive what the word of God, or what the scripture actually was. Like this is the very words of God. It said in verse 6 that they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Charles Spurgeon, a pastor from the 1800s in Great Britain, uh, a few years ago, my father-in-law gave me the entire volume of all of his sermons, and, which is just an incredible gift. And I was working through those this week, and I found a sermon on the Bible from Charles Spurgeon. It's a longer quote, but it's so beautifully said about what the Bible is and why it should lead us to worship. He said, here lies my Bible. Who wrote it? This volume is the writing of the living God. Each letter was penned with an almighty finger. Each word in it dropped from the everlasting lips. Each sentence was dictated by the Holy Spirit. Albeit that Moses was employed to write his histories with his fiery pen, but God guided that pen. It may be that David touched his harp and let the sweet psalms of melody drop from his fingers, but God moved his hands over the living streams of his golden harp. If I turn to the smooth page of John who tells of love or the rugged, fiery chapters of Peter, everywhere I find God speaking, it is God's voice, not man's. The words are God's words, the words of the eternal, the invisible, the almighty. Catch this, the Bible is God's Bible. And when I see it, I seem to hear a voice springing up from it saying, I am the book of God, read me. I am God's writing, open my leaf, for I was penned by God. Read it, for he is my author. And you will see him visible and manifest everywhere. It's there that we see kind of the Bible begin to come to life. And even the Bible calls itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. And we believe that these are the very words of God made available to us. This is the greatest access that we could ever imagine. This is a miracle. This is precious. It's an overwhelming grace that God has made his mind and his heart and his ways available to us through the pages of scripture. And when we read it and absorb it, lives are changed. And here's why. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attributes of the heart. The Bible is unlike any other book that has ever been written. Shakespeare or whatever, I don't know, I pick Shakespeare. I guess he comes to mind as a good author. You pick your favorite author. Like it has nothing on the Bible because the Bible is alive. Like it's living and active. It is not cold and stale. Which is why you can read a passage of scripture a hundred times and feel like you understand that passage pretty well. But on the hundredth and first time, it's like, boom, something new happens. Because there's more to this than just the fact that it's words on a page, but it's alive and active. And as Hebrews 12 just said, it's a sword. It cuts deep into our lives when we begin to read it. I've heard it said like this, that when you begin to read the Bible, it's actually the Bible that's reading you. Like you begin to read it and those words are messing with you and me. God begins to meddle with our lives and he begins to do something inside of us through his word. He begins to change us. It's a sword. It cuts us. But then also it's a sword and it's a, it gives us a weapon against the enemy and against sin and against temptation Ephesians chapter 6 describes the Bible as the only offensive weapon in the armor of God. Again, another pretty traditional church background. If you grew up going to Halloween things at church, uh, fall festivals, you, would, you could dress up as Bible characters and you could go buy the armor of God and you could wear a plastic version of the armor of God. And you know the only thing in that that's offensive is a sword. And the way scripture describes it is 
The Bible is our offensive weapon against the enemy. And here's how I think that plays out sometimes is the Bible gives us this opportunity to not only fight against sin, to have truth come into our lives, but it gives us the strength to fight against temptation in moments of temptation. How often are we tempted by the enemy and we feel like we have nothing to, get to like fight against him in return? Try something. The next time you're in a moment of temptation, whether by yourself or with others, you're being pressured to do something, I don't know what the circumstances might be. I dare you to quote the Bible, to open it up and begin to read it out loud because something happens when you read the Bible out loud or quote the Bible out loud in the presence of temptation. It's like the entire atmosphere of that room changes because that's the power of scripture. It is a sword. So let's get really practical for a moment and do what Ezra did. Here's my encouragement. Open the book. Open the book. Every day, pick a time, pick a place, and give it your attention. You know, we have so many voices and influences in our lives, and more than ever before. From podcasts to social media to the radio to articles to blogs, we watch shows, commercials, and movies constantly. Those voices are not slowing down. So we have to be intentional to make sure the voice of God is as loud or louder in our life as all of those other voices are. But that's gonna take you and I choosing to allow God's voice to rise up in the midst of all the other voices. See, I get, I get stuck in those voices. I'm sure you do too sometimes. I get stuck in those voices, so it's important for, for me that Scripture is my filter for how I hear them. Scripture becomes the filter in which every other voice that I hear comes through, and Scripture allows for me to hear what is true and what is good, and I filter these other voices and these influences. Let me give you an example. When I'm angry and I want to lash out, I was thinking the other day, I had to drive to a wedding yesterday, and I'm driving down the road, and I just like, it happened like four times, and I literally, in my mind, I'm thinking, do I have a sign on the front of my car that says, pull out in front of me and drive five miles slower than I'm driving? It felt that way, and I want to get angry. I want to lash out, but what does Romans 12 say? Don't return evil for evil. Now, I'm not saying if I know that person was evil or not. It feels like they're evil, but scripture says, don't return evil for evil. Or maybe you get worried, and I get worried about inflation and the economy, and I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. You begin to see how scripture becomes your filter for all of these voices, these influences, and these feelings. And we've had to do a lot of filtering this week and last week with the shootings in Texas and in Buffalo. I have my two oldest kids are in public school rising third grader and first grader. I came home from work on Tuesday and my wife is sitting there on the couch and she's like, should I keep him home tomorrow? I talked to Pastor Jason a few days later and his wife said the exact same thing. What, what do we do? Such pain and confusion and heartache and anger and loss. And what I love about scripture is it can still be our filter in the midst of that type of pain and darkness. So I wanna demonstrate it. Maybe, maybe you need God's word to filter for you what's happening around us, these, 
these tragedies. And, and let's like walk through this with me. This is the power of God's word if we allow it to be the filter for the voices in our lives. In Genesis chapter three, we learn from scripture that sin has brought destruction into the world, into our relationship with God and destroyed our relationship with others. In Genesis chapter four, we see the depth of sin's darkness. One of the very first recorded sins is actually murder. We know from scripture that we are to grieve with people in, the, in their pain. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, blessed are those who mourn. In Psalm 56, eight, scripture says that God puts our tears in his bottle. He says he welcomes our grief. In Romans chapter three, verse cha uh, through chapter eight, we learn that our sin can be forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter one, now as the church, we learn that we have a role in making the world better for everybody everywhere. In Genesis chapter one and Matthew 25, we learn that every single human being has dignity and is worth fighting for. In Revelation 21, we learn that all things wrong will one day be made right. And in Philippians chapter three, we are given hope because we know that this world is not our home. And one day all sad things will come untrue because of Jesus. See, when you don't know where to look, when you don't know what to pray or what to think, God is screaming, come here. Come to scripture. You may not be able to find all of the specific answers that you and I, like we think we need, but scripture will always point us to the one who does. Look here. Well, you have to choose though to read it, to open the book, to allow it to be that powerful in our lives. Scripture is our filter. You see how this works. Scripture gets our head and our heart right. So open the book, read it. You may be asking the question, though, like, like, where do I start? So let me get really practical. Where do I start? First, I'd say this. Don't just wander through the Bible. Like, don't just wander through the Bible. Get a plan. Like, what happens when you wander through the Bible and you do the whole, I think I'm just going to read it. They told me to read it at church, so I'm going to read it. And you, you open it up randomly and you start reading a story. And it just, can I be honest with you? If you do that, maybe once or twice, you find like a pretty good passage. that you're like, oh, that was exactly what I needed. But if you do that long enough, you're going to stumble on something weird and odd. And you're not going to know what to do with it. So get a plan when you read scripture like this. Here's one idea. Download the Bible YouVersion app on your phone. You've maybe heard of this. If you haven't, download the YouVersion app on your phone because there are hundreds of reading plans. Not only does it have the scripture, but it has hundreds of reading plans. And get some friends at your campus or home gathering or watching online. If you're thinking, I'm watching online by myself, I don't know, get up, go next door, knock on the door and be like, hey, bro, want to read the Bible with me? I don't, find somebody to do it with and then choose a reading plan Read it, wake up, read it, and check on your friend. I don't want to oversimplify it, but that's where you start. Choose a plan, choose a friend, pick a time, pick a place, check on your friend, make sure they're reading it too. You don't know where to start, open the book and get a plan. And then you may ask the question, how long should I read it? <laughs> I get this one all the time. Hey, Trey, I heard, again, we're supposed to read the Bible. Uh, I want to have uh, a time with God. Is it an, is it an hour? It's, it's, it's almost like we have this vision in our minds of you're going to hit a certain minute and it's God's going to be like, now I'm happy with you. It's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. There's this moment in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus has risen from the dead. And he appears to two men walking along the road. And they don't recognize Jesus for who he is. And get this, this is so powerful. Jesus begins to just have a conversation with these two men. And they're talking about Jesus having died. They don't even know it's Jesus. And Jesus starts to talk to them. And he it says this, that he goes back to the law and the prophets. And he begins to explain from scripture 
why the son of God had to die and rise again. Jesus eventually leaves these two men. And then when they realize that it was Jesus later on in the story, here's how they explain it. They say, we're not our hearts burning as he explained the scripture to us. How long should you read the Bible every day? Read until your heart is burning for God. That may be five minutes. I hope it's a little bit more than five minutes, but it may be five minutes. You're a verse in and you're a busy day, but you feel your heart grow. It may be 50. It may be longer, but don't put this weird qualification on your time with God. Read until your heart burns as you take in the scripture. So read it, the Bible. But then also, we don't stop at just reading it. Nehemiah instructs Israel with what's next. Back to Nehemiah to verse 9 of chapter 8. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy. They're reading the Bible, remember? To celebrate with great joy because they now understand the words that have been made known to them. So the Bible, rejoice in it. Scripture will be heavy at times. It will bring emotion that elicits sadness and concern, but ultimately the Bible is announcing good news, so rejoice in it. Nehemiah called the people to celebrate. He said, go have a festival. They read the scripture and they celebrated. The scripture first brought them to their knees, as we read a moment ago. It said they were weeping. But as they come to grips with their sin, then they begin to see the promises of God from Scripture, and their, 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 their weeping is turned to joy because they realize that their sin has been forgiven. Like, and, and check this out. In Nehemiah chapter 9, that is actually the longest recorded public prayer in the whole Bible. Fun fact, right? It's the longest recorded public prayer in the whole Bible is in Nehemiah chapter 9 from verses 5 through 37. And we get the heart of why scripture leads us to celebration. Because if you go read that long prayer, they're essentially praying this. It's that same cycle. God is good. We messed up. God had compassion. We messed up again. God had compassion again. That's the cycle. And, and here's why I think that that brings joy is because pain over sin gets flipped into joy because of forgiveness from sin. Like guys, this is our journey through the Bible as well. When, when you come to grips with the reality of your sin, and, and when I come to grips with the reality of my sin, it crushes me. But that is a necessary precursor to the greatest joy you and I could ever experience or imagine, that we were dead in our sin. This is the Bible, right? This is what it says, that we were dead in our sins, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Do you see how that happens? Sin is flipped to joy. The Bible is like this constant bullhorn from heaven announcing the greatest joy that we could ever experience. These are the words of life. 
And so we read it, we should find ourselves celebrating. We should find ourselves rejoicing because we know that the promises of God that were true with Nehemiah and the Israelites are still true for us today. But if we're honest, often reading the Bible doesn't feel that way. Like maybe you have trouble reading the Bible because you are hurt or going through a difficult time and you just feel numb to it. Or, or maybe you just don't feel like it's necessary. Or this one, <laughs> you just feel too busy. Feel too busy to have meaningful time in the Bible. Or, or maybe <laughs> this is where a lot of us are, is reading the Bible feels boring. It feels boring. I, I started thinking about this. Like, why, <laughs> why are we so easily bored? Like, why is it so easy for us to be bored? We have more access to fun more access to information, shows, games, more activities than ever before. I was hearing just this weekend, you can go get a pass at Topgolf and play for free the rest of the summer. Like we have more access to fun and more things to do than ever before, but we're bored. Uh, earlier this year, I was watching a show about a family that was crossing the country on the Oregon Trail in the 1800s. Um, and then I began to think about the game Oregon Trail in the like, 1990s, just what you played at school. Any Oregon Trail fans? If you don't know what Oregon Trail is, essentially it's like a game where you just had to take a family across the U.S. in this, and, and you had to keep them from dying from dysentery or rattlesnake bites. Those are the two things that you had to keep them from dying from. But these families would tr go across the country in a wagon, and it would take years and I'm over here, like, we dread a 30-minute drive across Gwinnett County with our kids. My oldest have learned how to ask, they're like, Dad, how long is the trip? And I'm like, I'm starting, I'm going to start lying to them. Because if I say more than 10 minutes, they think they need an entire entertainment system, a feast of all their snacks, and their favorite songs on Spotify in order to make it. I think about the Oregon Trail, and I'm like, man, the Hildebrands would have died. We would not... <laughs> have made it. We're so, we're so easily bored. I read an article in Psychology Today that said this, that 90% of all American adults experience boredom during their day, 90% of every day. Then it said youth experience boredom, 98% of their, like, or 98% of youth experience boredom. There's so much, like, like, why are we so bored? And I had this thought, we can laugh at the concept of boredom, but it is actually a serious enemy of spiritual growth. Boredom is a serious enemy of spiritual growth. What a subtle way for the enemy to take our eyes off of God to make us bored. So let me be sappy for a moment. How do we fight boredom in reading the Bible and actually begin rejoicing in it? How do we fight boredom? The secret to reading the Bible with joy is love. Is love. Let me illustrate it. Have you ever had a note written to you by someone you loved? It could be a handwritten note. It could be a simple phrase on a, on a sticky note that just says, I'm proud of you, I love you, but it's handwritten by somebody you love, a kid, a spouse, a grandparent, a parent, and maybe even a friend who moved away or a parent or a grandparent who passed away. And those notes handwritten become so precious. I was thinking about my kids. Um, they did a Father's Day present before the end of the school year. I think the hope was to make dads feel better since Father's Day happens in the middle of the summer. And my kindergartner, now first grader, he wrote, you know, writes, I remember the first time I saw in his little handwriting, I love you, dad. And what that does to your heart to see your kid write out something like that, I love you, dad. And then I read some of the answers he gave his, his teacher. That was fun. Um, the first one was fun. He said, if I had a lot of money, I'd buy my dad a new truck. Um, thanks, buddy. Um, but then at the top, he said, my dad makes the best. And literally, this is what 
she wrote out, hmm, he doesn't really make anything. So <laughs> I love you, bud, but uh, my other son, um, my oldest son, Bear, he actually wrote this in his own hand writing. He says things like, I love my dad because he wrestles with me. But then this one, my favorite thing about my dad is he gives me the best hugs. Right? It's in his handwriting. These are his words. I've written poems to my wife through the years. I don't know where they are. I'm assuming they're framed somewhere very special. <laughs> but because I wrote them, she loves them. I, I, obviously, here, here's my point. When you love the author, you love the words. And where there is love, there is rejoicing. When you love the author, you love the words. And where there is love, there is rejoicing. The Bible brings rejoicing because it comes from the God that I love. This book helps me know and be in relationship with the God I love. When you love the author, you love his words. The relationship is the foundation for reading scripture, and it stirs my heart to love God. I don't just read scripture to know scripture. I just don't read the Bible to know the Bible. I read the Bible to know God. The Bible is full of great poetry, but I don't read the Bible for good poetry. The Bible is full of rich history, but I don't read the Bible for its rich history. The Bible is full of great lessons for how to live, but I don't read it on a manual for how to live. I read the Bible because the God who made everything and the God who loves us all made his heart and his mind available, and I want to know him. When you love the author, you love his words. And when that starts happening, when you read the Bible through that lens, you go deeper, right? You're digging it well. You're going deeper. That's where rejoicing comes to light as you read scripture. So finally, we read it, we rejoice in it, and then we respond to it. The Bible, respond to it. Something needs to change. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves. They're making an agreement. They're choosing to do something. They bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow, to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. And then in the scripture, Nehemiah begins to list out all they plan to do in response to the promises of God in scripture, giving and serving and worshiping and holy behavior and holding the house of God in honor. You see, because it is the natural overflow of someone's life when they begin to read scripture, receive it, rejoice in it, that we respond with how we live. We live differently in response to God's revealed words. And this is where the power is. Not just that we would read the words of scripture to learn about God, but we would allow the, the word of God to invade our lives so that we would begin to live for God. These words are from, again, the God of the universe who loves you. So when you read them and follow them, it is not only for your good, because it is for your good. God made you. He designed you. He knows how to live. Like God leads us on this path to human flourishing, joy, when we do it God's way. So we read the scripture to know what is for our good, but also for his glory. Like, think about the Israelites in Nehemiah. What if they had not responded to the written word with their lives? But Nehemiah gathers them up. Ezra begins to read the law. They begin to listen, and they may even love what they're hearing. They're reading it. 
They're rejoicing in it. They're shouting them down like a good, like a good congregation does. Amen, pastor. That's a good word, pastor. By the way, I'm the old Baptist to me. If you ever start shouting me down, that's when a sermon goes from like 40 minutes to 50 minutes because I, I like to be shouted down a little bit. So they're like, what if they were just like, and don't we have the tendency to do this? Like we hear a word and we hear scripture and we're like, yeah, that's good. What if the Israelites had heard it and just gone back to their house and not responded to it? Not set their lives in his direction? No, that's not what happened because there's not power in hearing without doing, is there? So the Israelites, they heard the word, they were moved by it, rejoiced in it, and responded to it, and they set their lives in God's direction. And the call for us from Scripture is to do the same. To read it, rejoice in it, and respond to the word of God by moving our lives in his direction. This is not just information, but it's transformation. This is not just academic, it's impact. And that's what real spiritual growth is. Real spiritual growth is not just the accumulation of more Bible knowledge. The goal for your growth is to be impacted and formed into the likeness of Jesus by the power and the words of God. And that as you learn from scripture, you begin to align your life with how God says to live in the text. Steve Moore, he's the president of an organization called Growing Leaders, longtime 12 stoner. He wrote a book called The Top 10 Leadership Conversations in the Bible. And this is a quote from him on this subject. He says, a biblical understanding of spiritual maturity, that is spiritual growth, is not based on knowledge, but on the size of the gap between knowledge and obedience. So here's, here's what he's saying. Do you get it? Like he says, you can know a lot, but not be obedient to what you know. And if you know a lot, but you're not obedient to what you know, you are spiritually immature. The goal is to align what you know with how you live. The size of the gap. The larger the gap, the more immature you are. The smaller the gap between what you know and how you live, the more mature you are. Do you get it? And here's what's so great about this. is I know that at times people, uh, you may think that you're spiritually immature because you don't know much about the Bible. You may even say something like this, man, I don't know much about the Bible, so I don't know, I got a lot of growing to do. And I would just say, hey, like, it's you can be spiritually mature because your maturity in Christ is not based on how much you know, but it's based on how obedient you are to what you know. Okay. So, so catch this. So if you're here, spiritual knowledge, you're trying to bring your life up to that level of knowledge. And that is the work that God begins to do in spiritual maturity. Cause really growth begins with two things. I'm going to simplify it. Spiritual growth begins in two things, a hunger for God and his words and a humble willingness to do what it says. It is not the most knowledgeable person in the room. It is not the person that's been to all the Bible studies and underlined and scribbled the most in the scripture. It's the person who has learned to love the word of God, to love God in the humble willingness to do what he says to do. The Bible, we read it, we rejoice in it, and we respond to it. So what good is the Bible? I mean, I don't know if I have the words to actually describe how good it is, how lovely it is, how necessary it is, how right it is, how true it is, how important it is. So we just kind of put the Bible in front of us as a church and say, 
Would you love God? Would you love the Bible? Would you read it? Would you open the book? Would you rejoice in the promises of God in scripture? And then would you respond to it with your life? 20 weeks in the Old Testament because we believe the Bible is that important. Back in Nehemiah, the Israelites were waiting on their Messiah. That's what's happening at the end of the Old Testament, by the way. Israel's waiting. How is God gonna actually save us for eternity? And they were waiting on Jesus. Obviously, we're on the other side of Jesus and our waiting is no more because Jesus has come. But in their waiting, the prophets would write about the heart of God that's coming. And the last two pages of the Jesus Storybook Bible in the Old Testament wrap up the hope that we have in Jesus so well. And I want us to finish with this because it's this love that underscores all of Scripture. Read this with me. I can't stop loving you. You are my heart's treasure, but I lost you. And now I'm coming back for you. I'm like the sun that gently shines on you, chasing away darkness and fear and death. You'll be so happy. You'll be like little calves running free in an open field. I'm going to send my messenger, the promised one, the one you have been waiting for, the rescuer. He's coming, so get ready. It had taken centuries for God's people to be ready. But now the time had almost come for the best part of God's plan. God himself was going to come, not to punish his people, but to rescue them. God was getting ready to wipe away every tear from every eye, and the true party was just about to begin. So pastors, would you step up and lead us in a prayer that we would love God, love his word, and we'd experience that type of joy. Thank you again for spending time with us today. A special thanks to those of you who generously give through 12 Stone. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about 12 Stone, make sure you follow us on social at 12 Stone Church and check out a location or a watch party near you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you could subscribe, share it with your friends, hit the share button, or even take a screenshot and throw it in your social stories. And make sure to tag 12 Stone Church. Let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.